Welcome to the WP Campus Podcast, a podcast for those using WordPress in higher education. Like a lot of web tools, WordPress is built and sold as easy to use. That's one of the ways I pitch WordPress to users on my campus. It's easy to, it's easy to put content online and then you're done. But even if it's technically easy to publish, the actual work of publishing and executing a content strategy that aligns with your organization's needs is incredibly hard. Where do you even start with a, with a project like that? My name is Brian DeConnick at NC State University, and I'm joined today by Lori Packer, the Director of Digital Media at the University of Rochester. Lori spoke at WP Campus 2017 about how to succeed in content strategy and just about everything else in life in her presentation, A Four-Step Guide on How to Succeed at Practically Anything. If you didn't see it in Buffalo, I really encourage everyone to go and watch Lori's presentation at uh, wpcampus.org slash videos. But before you do that, you should listen to the rest of this podcast because Lori joins me today to talk about those four steps and how to apply content strategy, how to apply those steps to content strategy and our work on the web in general. So welcome, Lori. Thanks, Brian. Uh, so before people run off and watch your session, uh, could you give us a short overview of what it is you were talking about in Buffalo and uh, I guess also how it fits in with what you do at University of Rochester? Sure. Um, so this was a version of a presentation I've given a few different times in a few different ways. Um, and it really, I, I wish I could say I remembered how I kind of came up with it, but I, I really, the heart of it is basically literally four steps that I feel like if you follow those steps when doing anything in the field of human endeavor, you'll be more successful than if you didn't. Uh, so the four steps were basically um, to focus on the things that matter, step number one. Step number two, to do those things really, really well. Step three, to tell everyone about the thing you just did. And step four is to measure the results and then put that back to the beginning. Um, and I call it an epiphany and like, uh, it's not really, it's, when you think about it, it's one of those things that's just kind of obvious. <laughs> but I guess that makes epiphanies easier to easy to remember if you keep them obvious. Um, but I just kind of felt like no matter what it is you're trying to do, if you focus on the things that are important, execute them really, really well, make sure people know about the cool thing that you did, and then look back and see how it worked and what happened, that seems to be a pretty good recipe for success and also a pretty good just, I, I hesitate to use the word rubric, uh, but a pretty good rubric to uh, to apply to anything that you're doing to just kind of see how you're hitting each of those points along the way. Because I think at each point along the way, there's opportunities to really succeed at something, but there's also opportunities to kind of stumble and fail at something at each of those points along the way. So it's just been kind of helpful to me as I've been doing projects that seem sort of um, can sometimes seem kind of crazy and you're not really quite sure why you're doing them if you kind of stop for 30 seconds and just think, okay, what part of, what do I need to focus on in this project? How do I execute on that really, really well? Who needs to know what's going on and how well, how well we've done this thing? And how are we going to know what victory looks like? How are we going to know if it's mm -hmm. successful? Um, it's just kind of a helpful little framework to wrap around just about anything that you do. And then, as you say, my examples tend to be around content strategy because that's how that fits in to my work here at U of R. I'm the, my, my new-ish title is Director of Digital Strategy, but for a long time I was just like the web person. So I was sort of a combination of, of uh, 
a front-end web developer, a content creator and manager, and a social media community manager in our central communications office. So that's the full-barreled way I sometimes describe what my duties are. And for a long time, I was the only person doing that in the central communications office. Now we have a little team after we've done a bit of reorganization. So there's uh, three of us now. Um, but that's basically nice what we do. Hmm? It's that's nice a tiny team. Yeah, it's nice to have a team. Yes, it's, it's actually it, it makes some of the, the the steps in this process a lot easier when you've got uh, a team to kind of even just just to literally do some of the tasks, but also just to bounce things off of. It's good to not be in isolation. Mm -hmm. um, but for us, the we tend to focus on content, content development, content strategy, uh, web development. Um, but I really do think you could take that idea and apply it to. Pretty much anything and see um, how it affects your success at the end of your process what, of whatever it is you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I really enjoyed watching this session and uh, I'm going to be honest, I was skeptical going in. Um, <laughs> your, your, your title, <laughs> How to Succeed at Anything, uh, it, I I was ready to. I was ready to tear you down. <laughs> um, I didn't like to be deliberately, I guess, provocative in the title. So yeah, that's the, the reaction I'm hoping for. So cool. And sure. uh, and and I gotta also say, when I saw what your four steps are, I, I felt a little bit cheated. Things like just do those things really, really well. Like you know, it's, it's just so easy. But but the more I watched, the more it grew on me because I think um, you know it's. It's easy to, especially in anything remotely technical, putting things on the internet, it's really easy to get bogged down in really, really small details, like, you know, a particular uh, approach that you have for code or, or a tool that you're using or something like this. And, and I think your four steps really help refocus on, like, the, the whole process of what you're doing and and what you're trying to get out of that process and I really like that um, well thanks that's really that's nice to hear I was I was a little worried about presenting this um, talk or version of this talk to the WP campus audience just because so many of my examples are not as technical I do I am a, a I'm not really I wouldn't call myself a WordPress developer I we do host WordPress here um, and I can do some things but I don't go in and like I'm not creating plugins or creating custom themes, um, and a lot of the people at WP Campus are. So I, I wanted to try to be sure that some of the examples and just the description of my thought process around this could be applied to people who are doing other things besides social media management or content strategy or the other pieces of our job. Because I do think, yeah, like the, all of us, it doesn't really matter. The, the, the particulars change um, depending on where you are in an organization, but all of us can get sometimes too maybe too focused on the details of what we're doing and don't take a minute to step back and understand how something fits into a larger plan or how we even know if something fits into a larger plan. Um, so that's cool. I was I was I was hopeful that that could that people could see how it could apply to other fields of endeavor outside mm -hmm. of maybe content strategy. No, absolutely. Um, and I also say that the content strategy aspect of it is helpful to me also because. You know, while while my job is to build those themes and plugins in WordPress, um, that doesn't mean I don't get sucked into content decisions too. <laughs> you know, so and many people exactly. in higher ed do everything. We all need each other. I'm exact. Sometimes I get pressed into you know some theme development or something to do something quickly, and yeah, we all kind of need to understand what each other's um, 
skill sets are and appreciate them and what we bring to the table uh, and when to ask other people for help. So let's talk about your uh, your four-step framework one by one. Sure. Um, so step one was to focus on the things that matter. And in your presentation, you talked about uh, mission statements, uh, university mission statements mm -hmm. and vision statements and yeah. things like that. Um, and that's not something that I normally encounter in my day-to-day -day job. Mm -hmm. So why do you think uh, things like those mission and vision statements are important to what we do? Well, I always I include that in that talk because it always gets a laugh. As you mentioned, mission statements they have a bit of a bad rep, and I was exactly the same. Like I, as you know, the web template person or the web person in the communications office, I didn't you know actively seek out things like the university's strategic plan or the you know the research strategic plan or the academic unit strategic plan. Um, but it did. We got a new vice president a couple of years ago, so this is where this kind of new, new uh, focus and tack in our office started, and everyone kind of thinking about things in a different way. Um, and it just kind of became clear that if you those those documents, the university strategic plan, for example, in the mission statement, they can just be you know giant committee-driven binders. Um, sometimes I don't make for the most compelling reading. But if you're you know, in a, an IT office or communications office and you're not entirely sure what your little you know, cog in a wheel is contributing to the bigger mission, it can be dispiriting sometimes. You're not even really sure what it is you're pulling toward. But if you can, I think in those, in those documents, as maligned as they often are, uh, if you find the things that are keeping your admissions director or your provost or your dean of research or your dean of undergraduate enrollment up at night. Like, what are the things they're trying to hit? What are the things they're trying to achieve? And even just understand how the work that you're doing supports that, or even just think about it differently. I think it causes you to execute on it differently and do, and at least also talk about it differently. Um, so from a selfish standpoint, it can help you get a little bit more buy-in and support for the kind of things you want to do if you are smart enough to be able to talk about them in terms that those folks understand, in terms that, that reflect the, the strategic priorities of the institution. Um, and also just from a personal morale standpoint, if you think about what you're doing and you can understand that not all of it is going to directly impact some important strategic bottom line, but some of it will. Otherwise, why are you doing it? Mm -hmm. um, so even just adjusting your own mindset and your own language around how you talk about what you do and using those documents that every institution has. Some might be more inspiring than others. Some might be more um, um, compelling than others. But we all have them. All our institutions have a mission, something that they're trying to achieve. And that our mission is not to create websites. We create websites because they're important and because they support other parts of the institution. That's not why we exist. So if you can think about why the things you're doing support some larger goal. It just makes you feel part of a team that's bigger than yourself, especially I think if you're in maybe an IT office or a communications office where you don't have a lot of run-in day-to-day with your students, with your faculty, and it can feel a little isolating sometimes. So thinking of yourself as part of a larger a larger good is, is good. Mm -hmm. And I think that's interesting too because so I, I get to see universities from a couple of different angles. Um, I, I work in IT, and my wife is a faculty member at a different university. My husband's a faculty member at a different university. That's yeah, funny. And, and so <laughs> like, I think I, I have never met an IT person that's not a manager, and I've never met a faculty member who thinks about what they do in terms of the university strategic plan or something like that. And so I 
in terms of content strategy, in terms of what you do every day, um, you know, I, I assume part of what your communications group tries to do is get people to, you know, tell their stories to you so you can tell their stories to the broader audience. How do you, how do you get people who are sort of siloed into their part of the university, whether that's faculty or staff, how do you, how do you engage them in a way that connects back to, to the bigger mission and, and how do you, you know, make that real in your content strategy? Um, that's a good question. We do, we, so we, I guess I'll give an example. We, we try to focus on, again, sort of themes and arcs uh, that fit in with our institution's strategic priorities. And this is relatively new. We didn't used to, to again, with our new VP, we didn't used to think in this way. Um, but one of the things that is uh, a key in our undergraduate recruiting uh, stri uh, strategy is to focus on the opportunities for undergraduate research. University of Rochester has a lot of opportunities for students to do research at a very early stage in their career. We have a medical center and a medical school. We have a business school um, that our undergraduates can kind of tap into. And a large percentage, we tried to find out what the actual percentage was and we couldn't. That's another story for another day. <laughs> because we're so siloed, you couldn't actually find out that piece of data. But we're told a large percentage of our undergraduate students do do research. Um, so over this past summer, where it's usually pretty quiet in a, in a communications office because all the faculty are gone and we don't have, you know, faculty research to write press releases about, um, could we do a, a more focused uh, set of stories around what the student population is doing on summer, on campus during the summer? It looks really quiet. It looks like there's nobody here, but that's not true. There's all these students doing summer internships in labs and things. Uh, so we decided we were going to do this uh, um, focused effort focusing on the things that matter, focused effort on the summer experience for students who are here as undergraduates. And we ended up writing about 10 or 12 stories. We shot about four or five videos. Um, our photographer did some amazing uh, inside the lab um, portraits of undergraduate students. We were able to show a really great uh, sort of natural diversity in the students who were here over the summer. We covered all the different disciplines. We had people in the hard sciences, people in the arts and humanities and the digital humanities, all the, all the, the programs that we're trying to highlight about the institution. We have a new audio and music engineering program, so we made sure we included that, for example. And then when we packaged that all together, we were able, this gets to step three, I'm jumping ahead. Uh, we were able to take that package and, sh and tell the people that it was about that we did this cool thing about them. Like, look, it's on the homepage. Look, we can, uh, we did a custom illustration for summer research when our graphic designer did this really cool retro looking postcard with like a wish you were here, summer research style to it. Um, we used that in some paid social ads. So it was sort of, at a time that's usually quiet, it was sort of everywhere on all of our very public facing channels. And then we made sure that the people who we were talking about in this way knew that we were doing it in a special way. We weren't just writing a press release and sending it out. Um, we were still doing that. We were still doing media relations. Um, but we were able to show them something at the end of the day. And our communications officers who meet with the deans regularly, I don't, um, but the ones who meet with the deans, and we're able to physically just show them a web page that we built that gathered all this stuff together and treated it special. Like we decided it was special, so we treated it special. Mm -hmm. um, for those faculty that saw their work reflected in this way, they like, we hear feedback sometimes from them that from faculty, and you know this being connected to faculty as you are. Um, oh, I never read the newsletter, or you know, I don't want to talk to the communications folks because they'll make me talk to reporters. And da, da, da. Right. Um, the feedback has been just like through the roof positive from those faculty that they they see themselves and their work reflected in this kind of 
concerted, special way. Um, it kind of does a lot for that particular piece of content, but also for going forward, we have a really nice relationship with those faculty now. Um, they're more willing to work with us when we want something from them in the fall because we've given them something in return, if that makes sense. That, that's really cool. That's, I, I, mm -hmm. I like that a lot. Um, and yeah, you know, I think what I hear from a lot of faculty that I've met is just a general suspicion of anything that's vaguely marketing yep, or, exactly. or administrative even. <laughs> but this, I think because the, and this, and this has happened in other, I'm using this particular example, but because this particular example is about students and working with faculty, our faculty love working with undergraduate students mm -hmm. and our undergraduate students get a lot out of it. So this was like, this was just a really fun project. Um, but those same faculty now, when they see their work treated in this way by those communications people who they normally don't, you know, work with or uh, kind of avoid. Um, I, I think it's a, it's just a good relationship builder, and then it all it folds up into the larger strategy of the institution. We're supposed to be a place where students come to do undergraduate research. Why don't we ever talk about that aspect of the work that happens here? You know, we can do that ourselves. We can do. We have writers, we have photographers, we have a videographer, we can tell these stories and treat them in a special way that aligns with that strategic goal of the institution and makes the faculty look awesome. Everybody like, likes to be made to look good. So Right, right. So uh, let's move on to number two, which is a different kind of looking good, um, which mm -hmm. is doing, doing the things that you're doing really, really well. And like, like I said, uh, I was a little... So just do that. It's like yeah, totally, just, right? you just, just, you know, suck less. Right. <laughs> and, you know, th there was another talk um, by uh, by uh, somebody from Boston University at WP Campus about uh, imposter syndrome and things like that. And I feel mm -hmm. like, well, I'll just go do it really, really well on the one hand and somebody else saying, no, but, you know, trust yourself that you're really doing it well. Mm -hmm. I, I was... I expected those two things to be in conflict with one another, but your standard for doing something really, really well, I really liked and was surprised by. And you said something like, when you hate what you're working on, it's bad. Talk a little more about that standard and why you think like that that's sort of a good way of self-policing the quality <laughs> of your work. Um yeah, I sometimes I, I I hadn't made that connection with the imposter syndrome. That's really interesting because I feel like when I when I kind of flippantly said, you know, just do it really, really well. Um, I, I mean, like you don't we're not you don't need to, to um, think that you need to have superpowers or something in order to pull something off or that, that it's more of an opportunity to kind of you're presented with what you're presented with. How am I going to execute on this on this need on this task on this goal to the, the best that I can? Um, and it can be hard sometimes when a lot of the times you're you feel like you're working on things that you don't understand how they fit the larger goals, or you're just being told to do it. So you just kind of salute and execute and just get it done. There's always going to be some amount of that, mm -hmm. but if there's an opportunity to kind of take that thing that you've been given and find the kernel in it that can make it. Um, the best that it can possibly be, no matter what that it is. Um, that's what I mean by sort of trying to figure out how to do things really, really well. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I missed, I, I lost the original thread of your question. Oh, the, the when you're working on something and you know it's bad. Um, right. 
I feel like we all have to, again, and it doesn't even matter what your field is, but you know when you're working on something and you know when you're cutting corners, you know when you're half-assing it, or you know when the thing that you're being worked on, asked to work on is dumb. Uh, and sometimes you don't have, a, an, depending on where you are, you might not have an opportunity to kind of um, register that feeling. But I think we all do to an extent. So, you know, at a certain point, you do have to get the thing that you're being asked to do finished. Um, but when you're working on something and you know, especially from a content standpoint, we get asked all the time to, you know, post this to the web, put this on the Facebook page. And, and the this is like a PDF poster from an event that's happening tomorrow. And you know that's not going to work. You know, you know that that's just that that's not going to achieve anything. And you know that the person that's asking you to do it is probably in their own world, just kind of ticking a box and, okay, I asked for it to be in the newsletter. I asked for it to be on Facebook. Um, if you have time and you have the opportunity to take that thing that you've been asked to do and find something about it that can make it its best possible self, that's what I mean by the doing the thing mm -hmm. really well. That's why I included in my talk, I include an example of still my, one of my favorite things ever, uh, an annual fund ad from Oberlin College. I like that a lot, yeah. An advancement, but I can imagine that you know writing an annual fund ad is you know not the most scintillating task to be given. And whoever wrote that ad copy is, I mean, it's hilarious and it is exactly on point for Oberlin. And I have no connection to Oberlin, and it makes me want to give them money. Uh, so <laughs> figure out how to make an annual fund ad um, readable and awesome, then you can pretty much do it with anything. Yeah, yeah, I, I think. Um... I have not given to my university very often, but if they if they gave me ads like that, so uh, for for listeners, you should really you should really go watch Lori's session and watch out for the Overland ad, so you know what we're talking about. It's a it's a magazine ad, and it says something like, um, you know, remember that time when we we partied on the fraternity quad and flipped over the cars and set them on fire? No, we don't either. We went to Overland, and then it kind of con continues in that in that vein. So the third step for your four-step framework is uh, tell everyone about the awesome things that you've done. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's harder than it sounds. Um, you know, I not only just is it hard to talk about yourself sometimes, but I don't even think about talking about myself sometimes. So I guess why is that hard? <laughs> That I, that's the hardest one for me too. I always say like of the three, that's the hardest one to to do. It's also just the hardest one to remember to do. Like as you say, I don't even think about it sometimes. I don't think that the thing I just did, uh, I don't think that I should, you know, literally alert the campus or that I should, you know, who I should share it with. And that's been a big push from our new vice president. She calls it getting credit for your work. Where you know, if you, if we did this cool thing around summer undergraduate research, for example. Um, in the old days, we would have, you know, written a series of stories and maybe they would have gone in the campus newsletter or maybe they would have gone as press releases. Um, and maybe we, would, maybe we would have even made a little special web presentation for them. Um, but we wouldn't have followed up with the individual professors whose work we were highlighting in this awesome way to let them know, like, hey, if you check out the homepage this week, your, your student is being featured in this uh, story, and we really thank you for participating in it. It turned out great. Mm -hmm. um, you, know, you show them the copy, or you show them the while well, it's in progress, but you never celebrate the final thing. So it's really, and, and I'll be honest, the 
thing that's helped me do it more often and think to do it more often is now that I do have a team that I'm part of a team because I want them to get credit. Like if my if my uh, associate web editor does a really cool video or does something really awesome, I kind of want to make sure she gets credit. So I'm probably better at making sure other people get recognized than myself. But sometimes, also I think when you're involved in the process of getting something done, you understand maybe that that maybe the final product is good, but you are too close to the process. You know all the things about it that were stupid and squirrely, and you're kind of it's hard to be it's hard to celebrate it sometimes. But at the end of the day, you kind of you know you owe yourself a little pat on the back, and you need to let the people know. Like there's 33 people in the communications office, and if we in our university, and if we have deans and faculty members and administrators who don't see what we're doing. In a very, we think we see it because, like, well, it's on the homepage, it's in the newsletter. But you have to, you have to tell them. You don't, you can't just put it in the newsletter. You have to send them a separate email and say, "We did this story about you, and it's in today's newsletter. You should check it out." Mm -hmm. um, so it's being that taking that second step of of not just doing the thing, but telling the person that you did the thing, um, so that they have a moment to kind of share it amongst their audiences, turn them into audiences, but also to like appreciate you and thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, so I don't work in content, at least not most of the time. Um, you know, we're building plugins, we're building themes, we're uh, running multi-sites and things like that. But, you know, I think the number of the number of new projects that we've gotten that have been generated out of just casually mentioning to somebody, oh, we were working on this other thing for this other group on campus that's something completely unrelated to what I think you need, but that, that starts people thinking about, you know, the value that you bring to them and, you know, reimagining the, the value you bring to the university and, and how they can use you. I think, you know, that's, it, that's what I started thinking about as you were talking about, you know, telling faculty members that they were featured in these stories is just telling people about the good work that you're doing Mm -hmm. So that they realize that, oh, that's good work that can be done for me, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the, um, when you work in an, in an office that's more in a support role, sometimes, you, you know, no one really thinks about you until something's gone wrong. So mm -hmm. you're the person that gets called to fix something or handle something. Um, but if they see along the way the, the things that you're doing that, you know, not just the times when, you know, something bad has happened and you need to be called in to put out a fire, but the things that you're proactively doing that are good, mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, I'm not, you're not sitting around writing, writing plugins because, you know, you find it personally edifying, although you probably do, um, but you're well, doing them for <laughs> Like they 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 allow they allow people to work in smarter ways. They allow you know content to be presented in better ways. They just they they create um, um, just pieces of online reality that wouldn't exist if you hadn't sat down and done it. And people just think the web happens by magic sometimes. It's just sort of like oh Brian's going to work his magic. No no Brian's going to sit down and write a plugin, and it's going to take time. And he's smart, and he needs to think about it and do it well. Um, and now here it is. You need to you need a moment to kind of celebrate that work. I, I appreciate your endorsement of me being smart and doing <laughs> that well. Um, so after you tell everybody, then you measure the results. So let's talk about um, how you measure those results and what kind of data, in, in terms of content strategy, what kind of data is useful, but also in terms of just, I mean, it's it's easy. It seems like metrics, it seems like measuring things are in vogue, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, sometimes 
numbers don't mean a lot. So how do you how do you make sense of that? And especially as you're reporting it to other people, make sure that they make sense of it too. Yeah. Numbers are definitely in vogue. We we're we just hired. He hasn't even started yet. He starts in a week, but we have a new. Um, I'm going to get his title wrong, but it's something like director of digital assessment. So his job is basically going to be numbers and dashboards and um, and institutional intelligence and all that kind of stuff. Um, we do a series of uh, daily reports and weekly reports and monthly reports for the kind of things you would imagine that the a communications shop would report out on. So we talk about traffic to individual stories. We talk about um, sources of traffic, uh, what did well, where did, how did people find us. Uh, we do social media metrics, um, and reach, engagement, paid versus organic. Um, what's hard and what I think we're hopeful that this new person will help us under understand better um, is how that then fits into the first step in the in the framework, um, the focusing on the things that matter. Um, what needles did it move? If, if, if there's a goal to, we often, I think this is similar in IT and communications, we don't have these kind of hard output goals to measure often, you know, and if you work in admissions, you have some hard targets you're trying to hit. If you work in advancement, you have some hard targets you're trying to hit. Our general goal in communications is to raise the profile of the university in some meaningful way. That's what we're always told. And how do you know when you've done that? Unless you end up on the news, and half the time when you end up on the national news, it's not for a good reason. <laughs> and you have to manage those situations too. Um, but trying to understand how the, the things that you're doing are actually creating real outcomes and not just outputs that you can count um, is kind of the next step for everybody, I think. And I don't have an answer for that. I'm, I'm waiting for I'm waiting for Brian to start next week. <laughs> um, but yeah, there, there's there, there's a big push toward that and understanding. Uh, but I think your anecdote earlier of like feeling like you've been asked to create more um, development, you've been given more development work and more projects based on simply communicating out some of the good work you've already doing. That's anecdotal, but you can kind of say, well, well we developed this one plugin and as a result, 16 other departments have reached out to us for work on blah. Um, and being able to connect in a causal way is kind of the, the gold standard. It's the hardest to do because mm -hmm. who knows why anyone does anything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's at least, if you can be in a meeting, imagine being in a meeting or a presentation where you can say, you know, we made this we made this change. This is an example in our office. We, we changed how our undergraduate student newsletter works. We used to have a weekly newsletter that went out every Sunday. Um, and we had a new student in our office who did a survey of undergraduate students to see you know, what they thought of that newsletter. And we could tell in our own data that the open rate was tiny. Um, that people were, were spending all this time putting it together, no one was opening it, no one was reading it. So we did this user survey, used that res the results of that feedback to change up how those newsletters work. Now we do two newsletters instead of one, but one is called Read This, and it's just like the two things you need to know this week, and it's literally just like, if you miss this deadline, you're not gonna get your major declared, and you need, yeah, it's like the really important stuff. Right. And then the second one is more of a fun one, it's like the student profiles, and here's a cool student doing a cool thing. Um, but we sort of divide them out that way. And we are able to say that both of them, our open rates have more than doubled, the click-through rates have tripled. You know, it's just, it's a really good story to be able to tell. Um, and if it hadn't turned out that way, then we would be back at the drawing board. We would know like, well, that 
isn't working. Um, but if you're just kind of throwing effort at something and you don't have a good sense at the end of the day of what actually happened, um, it makes it harder to focus on things that matter because you're spending all your time on a project that you don't even really know the end results of. So when you gave your talk in Buffalo, um, there's a question at the end. Somebody asked about like, uh, like it was something about managing expectations and and you know when when your bosses expect a hit or are wondering why you know one thing performed really well and everything else didn't or something like that. Um, and you said you uh, with these reports you provide a little bit of context, like actual mm -hmm. pros, not just numbers, um, explaining what it all means. How how do you go about writing things like that? And I guess what how how do you decide what it all means? Mm -hmm. um, that's a good question. Um, I don't like to just give someone, um, especially if, if I'm sharing these daily, weekly, monthly reports, I share those with the whole communications office. Um, and then the VP takes versions of that and uses them in the in reports that she gives to other audiences. Um, so I don't like to give that audience just an Excel spreadsheet or a chart or something that just has lists of numbers. Uh, so I try to describe a little bit about what I think is going on. So for example, if we, if we know that one of our press releases, one of our stories on our new center, did really, really well one week, one week, and we can tell that like 90% of the traffic is coming from Reddit, or 90% of the traffic is coming from um, an, a weird blog in Bangladesh, like stuff that just <laughs> happens. Um, you can kind of call that out to people so that they don't see like, you know, well that story did really, really well, why was that? And you can explain to them why that was. Sometimes you can't, sometimes things are kind of fluky. Um, but if, if you can explain a little bit about why something was an outsized success or why something was an outsized failure. If something didn't work, um, you can sort of indicate why you think that is. I don't like to just give people numbers out of context. Uh, I think I don't think people read numbers out of context. Like you, it needs to tell a story, and you have an opportunity for the to tell a story with numbers. Um, I don't spend a ton of time kind of uh, every morning sort of theorizing about why I think something happened. Sometimes there's unusual things or points of interest or funny or odd things like the blog in Bangladesh right. um, that I want people to understand that, you know, this was an oddball and here's why, uh, or this was really good and we should try this again, like this did really well. The, the daily reports are social media focused. Um, and for those, I think the reason those are really helpful is they, they really help the social media team on a day-to-day -day basis adjust what they do. So they have real kind of immediate internal practical value in addition to sort of tracking success over time. But what I'm hopeful that this new person will be able to do, it'll be his job to kind of come up with a more, um, a more cohesive uh, sort of data-driven strategy around how we tell stories with numbers than I've been doing. That's what I hope anyway. I hope he'll just take all the stuff I've been doing and do it way better than I've been doing it. That'll be cool. So it's really cool that you have somebody coming in onto your team that that does that, right? And it, you're, you, you said you've got an office of about 33 people in communications. Um, yes. So I work in central IT and um, we have, so I, I talked a little about this in, in my talk at WPS. <laughs> um, we we have communications goals and needs to communicate out to campus about mm -hmm. things that people need to know, like two-factor authentication or you know mm -hmm. something like that. Um, and the one thing that, uh, in my experience, at least the one thing that IT doesn't like to invest in is its own communication strategy and its own communication staff. Mm -hmm. um, 
we we just don't have a lot of people or a lot of people hours to put into things like that. So, you know, you've got this four-step framework, and in your talk in Buffalo, you uh, you started out by asking people to raise their hand if they have somebody who works full-time on content strategy, and uh, it didn't seem like most people raised their hand no, about that. No, most people don't raise their hand. That's why I have that in the presentation. Right. So, so <laughs> if you don't have if you don't have somebody who's working on content strategy, and you don't have somebody like it, if you feel like the hours are already filled up with everything you're already supposed to be doing. How do you build time into your schedule? How do you make the time to do things like this? Uh, well, I'll say the the this presentation grew out. It was a smaller part of a larger presentation that I did at Confab like three years ago um, that was called Don't Have Content Strategy, Try Content Tactics. That was the title of it. So <laughs> that whole goal of that was, to, and that was before we had our new VP and before we started talking in, ter in these terms. So it was kind of interesting how things changed. Um, but the, the, the point of that presentation was if you don't have someone, if you're not thinking in these terms, if you don't have a content strategist, if you don't have someone who's trying to find the larger connections and the strategic goals and stuff, what can you do in your little, from your little perch of whatever it is you do uh, to get some early successes under your belt and demonstrate the value of thinking in this way. So that's where the four step framework kind of right. happened. So that was like the second half of that presentation. Um, that there are, of course, it's much better if you have someone who, um, if you have dedicated project managers, you're gonna do a much better job at project managing, management, for example. There are teams, you know, IT teams sometimes don't have a project manager, which I always find, I've worked in those situations and it's horrific. Like if, you're, <laughs> if no one's keeping people on task, then tasks aren't gonna get done. But sometimes you don't have that, you don't have that person because the, the people that you uh, can hire or that you have need a specific skill set around development and no one is a project manager and often the work suffers for that. And I think the analogy is true in a content world. If you have everybody who can do, um, who's more of a practitioner, you have lots of writers and, and designers and illustrators and photographers, but you don't have someone who's thinking about the overarching goals. It makes it, it doesn't make it impossible. It just makes it harder because now everyone else is trying to do their actual job. And then at the same time, do these more kind of strategic tasks. Mm -hmm. So I definitely concede that it's easier when your office is set up and you have the resources um, to set it up in a way that has someone dedicated specifically to executing on goals and doing things really, really well. And someone who's more focused on trying to find out how things, focusing on the things that matter or measuring the results, for example. Um, so my conceit when I first did this was describing how one person can do all these things and should do all these things. It's much better if you've got roles in your in your in, uh, organization that allow individual people to focus on those things so that everybody can execute on the, uh, their own piece of it. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not answering your question. That's probably, <laughs> probably dodging your question. <laughs> no, but I think, I mean, this four-step framework is, you know, it's, I think what's really kind of brilliant about putting it in these terms is that each step can be as big or as small as you need it to be. You know, I I think you know, it it's going to be hard for somebody who has a million other things they have to do to find the time to build a whole overarching content strategy for everything. But it's not going to be hard for them to take a few minutes to read the mission statement and think about, you know, how's what I'm doing fit into this? And it's not going to be hard to, you know, send an email to, to the people they need to send an email to to say, hey, look at the things we just did. 
And so, you know, I, I can see how just sort of iterating through those four steps over and over again, you know, before you know it, you end up with something in the direction of a content strategy. Yeah, exactly. And it kind of gets each individual person, whether you're um, you're a WordPress developer or a photographer, like if you're if you're focused on one piece of a larger um, a larger team, um, you can still think in those four terms for or in those four ways about each step of your process. So a photographer, for example, the photographer wouldn't be ex expected to come up with a complete analytic strategy for a communications office. But he or she could be interested in where do my photos end up? What what happens on the university's Instagram account? What, what happens to my photos when they end up on? How do they end up on different departmental websites? Um, it's you, you're still your job is primarily to go out and make great photography. Um, but we have, and we have an amazing photographer. If if I'm not sharing with him how well his photos are received and what happens to them at the end of the day. And if he's not curious to know about that, it just makes the the overall um, effort a little less rewarding. So if we're all kind of thinking in this way um, to understand how the work we do fits a larger purpose, the results of the work that we do, how to do it really, really well instead of phoning it in, um, each of those steps along the way can, I think, be applied by each person no matter what level they, they sit at. So I have one last question about your presentation. Sure. Um, you opened up telling a little story about the Rosetta mission and landing <laughs> a probe on a comet. And uh, you, you sort of asked tongue in cheek, uh, uh, I wonder what's harder, redesigning a university news site or landing a probe on a comet? <laughs> so uh, you never really gave an answer to that in Buffalo. What do you think is harder? Um. I don't know. I don't. Mean, I don't mean to be flip either, but I'm. I think. I think what's funny. I mean, you work in a central office, and I'm guessing that North Carolina is a pretty decentralized place, right? So yes, we, we have like twelve colleges, and they all do their own things. Exactly. We are in the same boat. Um, and whenever you work in a centralized place at a decentralized place, it's just it can be the worst because you're like one of the few people who's sort of trying to pull in a in a trying to coordinate everybody. At when they don't necessarily want to be coordinated or don't see the goal of being or the, the upside for them. Like, why why do I need to talk to these people? It's much easier to just do my own thing. Um, so that's what makes me think that it might be easier to land as um, a lander on a comet because I've never worked at the space program. I've never worked in this field, but I have to imagine that at least those folks are all kind of working on the same project together. <laughs> or maybe they're not, I don't know, but I feel like at least those folks are all kind of, they're all ready together trying to, trying to pull in the same direction. There doesn't need to be this first effort at breaking down silos and hurting everybody. And on a new site that everybody owns, but nobody manages, you know, everybody feels like they, they have a piece of it, but nobody owns it. Um, it can be really hard sometimes to kind of, um, explain to people why you're even bothering with this, explain why uh, their role in it is important, why you need them. I feel like that's less true in the space program. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> everybody kind of already is there, you know, like that part's already handled. Uh, and now they just got to, you know, get down to landing an orbiter on a comet. Um, but at least they don't have to deal with the um, that first step of getting people to even understand why they should care that we're landing a, a, an orbit on a comet. That part is is already a given. Well, for the next episode, I'm going to try to get somebody from the European Space Agency to get, get their side of the story. <laughs> <laughs> completely wrong. They're like, oh my god, you wouldn't imagine. It's like herding cats over here. 
All right, so um, talk to the orbiter people. It's crazy. <laughs> so thank you so much for talking with me about this. Um, you're also involved with Hyatt Web, oh, yeah. and that's coming up. It so is. this is gonna. I'm gonna be there in Hartford. This is gonna be my first Hyatt Web. What can I expect? That is great. I can't wait to see it. Um, it's very cool. Uh, so Hyatt Web's been going for quite a long time now. I've been involved in it for about twelve years. Um, it grew out of a couple different conferences that kind of came together. It's it's a uh, the conference for higher ed web professionals by higher ed web professionals. So it's all people who do the jobs that we do, uh, from technical to content, from managers to kind of on the ground people, admissions, advancement, communications, IT. It kind of covers the whole range. It's basically everyone who needs to pull together to create the web at each of our institutions. Um, there's seven different concurrent tracks. There's a lot going on. It's easy to be kind of overwhelmed by the program, I guess, but um, it's really easy also to uh, either focus on one particular track if that's what you want to do or jump around, which is what I encourage people to do because mm -hmm. uh, you can do a little bit of content. You can do a little bit of technical. Uh, there's a strong WordPress presence. Um, we're partnering with WP Campus as we did at the Buffalo conference uh, in Hartford. We have two workshops, a pre-conference and a post-conference workshop that are sponsored by WP Campus. Um, one by uh, Curtis Gramala and Lacey Pascal on WordPress and higher ed. Um, and I'm blanking on the other one, which I should have it committed by memory. Um, Gabriel Nagme um, and uh, security in WordPress. Uh, so if you're doing, uh, if you are a WordPress developer and want to take advantage of those other opportunities, um, plus in the program itself, in the regular tracks, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of WordPress uh, presence there. Um, and it's just really fun. It's like it, we everyone's really kind of focused and you know goes to goes to all the sessions and you know some sessions will have people out the door, um, but everyone's also very um, kind of generous and everyone's sort of in the same boat. You kind of immediately feel like sort of a camaraderie with people. If nothing else, you can go to the bar afterwards and complain about the same stuff that's happening at your institution <laughs> and happening at theirs. And you'll, you'll definitely leave with at least two things that you can do immediately that you're just like, oh my God, I had no idea that that existed. Thank you so much, you're a lifesaver. Um, and then two like big picture things that, oh God, I wish I could do this at my school. I need to figure out how to lay the groundwork for this. Um, so it's a, it's a great little group of people that get together every year. And, and you'll also meet like two or three people that you'll stay in touch with afterwards. And that's the best thing for me is that you can just email somebody or DM somebody on Twitter and say, didn't you say in your presentation on e-newsletters that you found this template thingy and they'll get back to you. Um, so we kind of, we, we save each other's butts on a, on a regular uh, basis <laughs> in the Hyatt web community. That sounds great. I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, so uh, registration closes for Hyatt Web on September 8th. So if mm -hmm. any of that sounded good, act fast. Uh, 2017.hyattweb.org. <clears throat> um, I have a couple other things I'm going to read off real quick. Uh, WP Campus 2017 was a ton of fun and a huge success, but it's never too early to think about 2018. So. Uh, mm -hmm. By the time this episode is out, the application for WP Campus 2018 may be online. It may not be yet. Uh, if it's online, you should look and uh, uh, think about applying. If it's not online, you should think about applying anyway and keep checking back to see if the application is online. Um, it's also never too, too early to start thinking about WP Campus Online. Uh, our free one-day online conference will be back again in the fall. and so. Um, Keep an eye on wpcampus.org 
for more information about that and uh, <clears throat> start thinking about the presentation you may want to give. Uh, just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and on Google Play by searching for WP Campus Podcast, and you can listen to each episode and follow links to more information, including uh, Lori's session, the, the video recording, her slides. Um, <clears throat> all that will be at wpcampus.org slash podcast. Uh, where can we find you online, Lori, on social media or your, your work at University of Rochester? Uh, well, you can find the University of Rochester at rochester.edu, and you can find our new center, which we're in the process of redesigning, <laughs> at rochester.edu slash new center. Uh, I am on, uh, the best place to find me is on Twitter. I am at Lori P.A., Lori Pa on Twitter. Okay. And uh, you can also follow at WPCampusOrg on Twitter for announcements about this year's conference. Uh, sorry, I copied and pasted that from uh, from the last episode. <laughs> you can find announcements about next year's conference and everything else that, uh, that WP Campus does, um, news and updates about this podcast, the WP Campus community, and more. Um, and if you have a suggestion for the podcast, a topic that you want to talk about or have somebody else talk about, tweet it at WPCampusOrg, and we'll see it. So, Laurie, thanks so much for, uh, for joining me, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you at Hyad Web. Thanks, Brian. I can't wait till October.